Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The state of California is in the midst of expanding a pilot program to reduce drug addiction that has a simple premise. Pay people to stop using stimulants like meth. Over the years, a couple dozen studies have shown that different variations of giving people gift cards not to use drugs simply works. But many people feel a little squeamish about the idea of paying others not to do something they find immoral or improper. We'll dive into the effectiveness and ethical considerations of the program, which has been piloted in San Francisco at a time when stimulant use and drug-related deaths have skyrocketed. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. California has begun testing paying people to stop using meth and other stimulants, including here in San Francisco. It's the first state to use federal dollars for the purpose, and the program will expand to 20-some other counties. So we're going to get a look this morning at how the program works and why public health advocates think it's effective. We're joined first this morning by Brad Shapiro, who's a professor at UCSF School of Medicine and the medical director for the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. We're also joined this morning by Hector Hernandez Delgado, who is a staff attorney with the National Health Law Program. Welcome, Hector. Thank you so much for having me. So, Brad, first... Walk us through how the program is working now. I understand it just got launched fairly recently in San Francisco. So how does the program work? Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, maybe just a tiny bit of context that, that this is a, first of all, this is a pilot program for the Medicaid program, and uh, so federally funded program to address stimulant use, and that California is the first state that raised its hand to say, we'd like to participate. And then San Francisco County also jumped in to say, we'd like to be part of the first wave of this program. And so and within San Francisco, a few programs, including ours, which is based at San Francisco General Hospital, uh, wanted to participate. And so basically the program is designed to provide incentives to people based on their uh, ability to not use stimulants, which in this case is methamphetamine, amphetamines, or cocaine. Mm -hmm. And patients who are enrolled in Medicaid are able to participate. And 
they we they hear about the program, they talk with us, and there's been a tremendous demand. Uh, mm-hmm. And once they're screened, they immediately enter the program. And the way this works is that for 12 weeks, they will submit a urine sample twice a week. And if that urine sample is negative, does not have cocaine, methamphetamine, or amphetamine in it, they will immediately receive a voucher reward. And they can choose where that reward uh, will be used. So this is not cash. So it's not cash money. No. Yeah. These, are, these are vouchers, and they can be used at commonly visited places like Walmart, uh, Safeway. There's a variety that they can choose from based on their – and they can make a different choice every time they get a, a reward if they'd like. And they start off at a value of $10 uh, each time they give a negative uh, – sample. And then uh, each week that they've been giving negative samples, the value increases by $1.50. And this continues over 12 weeks. So by the end of 12 weeks, they could be receiving up to $26 for uh, a negative urine sample. And then there's an additional 12 weeks that follows that, which in which they are giving urine samples once a week. And during that time, the cash values are slightly different. And this is all based on uh, as you mentioned, dozens of research studies which support contingency management and give us clear evidence about how to structure a program to be most effective. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing listeners might be thinking, certainly first thing we thought when we were thinking about this show, we know that addiction is very difficult to to beat. We hear about it all the time. And we're talking about pretty small dollar amounts, you know, both on a weekly basis as well as just overall, right, we're coming in under $600. So how can that be effective? That's a great question. Uh, I I think the simplest thing to say, I'll answer it in more detail, but the simplest thing to say is is that what we do as researchers and scientists is we actually look at at what works. And it turns out it just is effective. So I Mm. could just tell you that. Mm -hmm. Right. But interestingly, uh, there was early research, uh, if you go back to the 90s, where uh, people who use cocaine came into the laboratory and they were offered payment. They were offered a choice. You can use cocaine. We'll give you the cocaine or we'll give you a certain amount of money. And this is 1994, so maybe adjust the dollars a little bit. But when people were offered uh, you know, five cents, most people chose cocaine. When they were offered a dollar, some people actually took the dollar. And when mm. people were offered $2, a fair number of people took the $2. And now I, I, I'm not saying that I can fully explain this to you, but there is, when you mentioned the notion of paying people to stop using uh, stimulants, I think it's more complicated than that, that we're talking about the reward system of the brain, and that responds in particular ways that are not always entirely logical. Mm-hmm. So when you uh, receive a reward, it, it is very, imp- it's a very potent reinforcer, even if the reward itself may not manifest as a huge amount of money. Uh, huh. But that's, like that rewarding people with sort of cash-like rewards is more effective perhaps than just cash uh, across the table or something. Well, if yeah. you simply said to someone, I'm going to pay you you know, $100 to not use methamphetamine anymore, I don't think you'd have a lot of success. Uh, it's a different mechanism. So that's why I'm huh. a little cautious about the frame of paying people. It's really a more uh, a more complex and uh, structured intervention than simply paying people. Hector, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about California kind of in a, in a national context. What is our state doing that other states, you know, are, are not? 
Sure. Um, <clears throat> so in the case of, of California, um, it, it was the first state to receive approval from the federal government to use uh, federal funding for this contingency management program. Um, so we know this works, um, uh, uh, as Brad already mentioned, uh, because of the studies that are out there. But there's also some um, uh, real life examples that uh, have already been implemented of individuals uh, getting access to continuous management uh, services uh, and being effective, right? That, that, that those services are being effective. But that is usually in the context of uh, private funding, right? Using private funding, private institutions. Um, uh, what California is doing different is that the, uh, we're using, the state is using federal public funding, combining it with state public funding because the Medicaid, the Medicaid program, Medi-Cal in California, um, is a program that is administered by the state and using both federal and uh, state funding. Um, so in that sense, it's the first state to actually get it, um, permission mm -hmm. from the federal government. Again, it's an experiment. So it's a, uh, it's the current um, uh, uh, waivers and actual waiver that, that they, they get from the federal government runs for five, for five years. And then after that, you, you will see, we'll see what, what happens. Um, but, but it's all based on, on, on getting a waiver from the federal government because it's otherwise services that wouldn't be available through huh. medical wouldn't be able to cover with federal uh, funding. So that's what's happening in California. Yeah, well, why is that? Like, w what part of the sort of federal law prevented this sort of thing from, from happening before, if, as as we've noted, you know, studies have shown to be effective? Sure. So uh, the Medicaid program is usually uh, for providing direct medical services, clinical services to, to, to individuals. Uh, in the case of contingency management or recovery incentives program, uh, as California is calling the, the, the program, um, it's, it's not actually uh, providers giving a, a, a specific service, a clinical service to the person, right? We're using these uh, positive reinforcement uh, mechanism to provide cash incentives for, or not cash incentives, the gift cards and incentives or voucher incentives to the, the, the beneficiaries. So in that sense, um, uh, it's not uh, entirely uh, allowed or, or clear in, in the Medicaid, Federal Medicaid Act that federal funding could be used for this. So California had to sort of get permission from uh, the federal government that, okay, because this is an experiment, um, uh, because there's a, a hypothesis to be tested, right, that, that, that this type of, of services is uh, important and effective for uh, addressing stimulant use disorders, for that reason, we're going to allow the state to, to hmm. use uh, th this public funding to test that hypothesis and see how it goes. Yeah. We're talking about a pilot program in San Francisco and several other California counties in which, you know, people who use stimulants are given incentives, uh, that is to say gift cards, in order to uh, get them to stop using uh, stimulants. We're joined by Brad Shapiro, professor at UCSF School of Medicine and medical director at Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General, as well as Hector Hernandez Delgado, staff attorney with the National Health Law Program. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, what are your thoughts about this particular pilot program and what it might be able to do for people who um, are addicted to, uh, to stimulants? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Do you have experience overcoming an addiction to these kinds of uh, drugs. You can email us forum at kqed.org, or you can go to any of our social uh, spots, Twitter, Instagram, threads, we're KQED Forum. You know, Brett, how come you're targeting stimulants specifically? I mean, given that you run an outpatient program for opiate treatment, like why, why is, is this program working for stimulants? 
That's a great question. Uh, so we do run an opiate treatment program, and we are very fortunate that there are some excellent medications available that are extremely effective for addiction to fentanyl and heroin, uh, which we see a lot of in San Francisco. And so we have medical treatments. We do not have in parallel medical treatments that are uh, as effective for stimulants with methamphetamine and cocaine. We're just starting to develop some medical treatments that have some degree of effectiveness, and I will tip my hat to some, you know, San Francisco Department of Public Health has done some of that work. But uh, in terms of having a highly effective treatment, we haven't had it. And uh, so that is why we're, we're targeting stimulants. And in the context of the very sharp rise in stimulant use and overdose deaths associated with stimulants, and I would just touch back to, I really appreciated Hector's comments. Uh, I would put a fine point on the fact that we have had this very effective treatment for stimulant uh, use disorders available for decades. It's been rolled out in the VA system, but anti-kickback legislation has been something that has been pushed forward uh, by people who said we could not use federal funds for this. And it's a bit of a story, but my main point here is that Mm. I've been impressed that in the COVID public health emergency, the federal government has taken extremely rapid action to eliminate barriers to treatment. I don't see oftentimes a parallel level of activity for uh, stimulant use disorder for other addiction treatments, despite the fact that in San Francisco, we're going to have at least four times as many people die from uh, overdose deaths as we had from the, at the peak of COVID. Yeah. That's such a sobering statistic. We're talking about a pilot program in San Francisco and several other California counties that gives drug users incentives not to use in the form of gift cards. We're joined by Hector Hernandez Delgado, a staff attorney with the National Health Law Program, and Brad Shapiro, professor at UCSF School of Medicine. We'll get to some of your calls and comments after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a pilot program in San Francisco and several other California counties that rewards stimulant drug users for not using drugs 
with gift cards. We're joined by Hector Hernandez Delgado, a staff attorney with the National Health Law Program, Brad Shapiro, a professor at UCSF School of Medicine and the medical director for the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General. We want to welcome in a participant in this recovery incentives program, Jeremiah Fitz. Welcome to the show. Good morning. So, um, Jeremiah, um, talk to us a little bit. How did you get um, involved in, in this program? Oh, there, there was a, a, a dose here at the at O-Top, and there was a, a leaflet. And I went ahead and uh, talked to my counselor about it, and then they got me enrolled. Yeah. So you'd been um, in opiate treatment and decided to, to extend this. I mean, did you decide, like, I would just want to stop using stimulants, or, like, how did that how did it come about? Yeah, I, I wanted to stop using stimulants as well as the, the opiates. And then uh, I thought this was a pretty nice opportunity to help assist. Uh, I, I just had a, a, a son uh, two and a half months ago. Mm. So this is a, a, another little reward, a little added incentive to do what I already needed to do. Yeah. And so far, I mean, do you think the program is helping you? I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we were talking about earlier um, with Dr. Shapiro was just that there, the the dollar amounts aren't huge, right? But does it still feel like something where you're like, oh, well, that was worth it. I'm glad I didn't use this week. I get this bonus. I do. I I feel it's it's, it's definitely worth it. Okay. And plus, we, we we get the option too. Like, um, either we can get paid each individual time, or we can we can stack it up towards and then get paid all at the end. That's that's what I'm. That's what I chose to go. Uh, that's the route I chose to go with. How come? I think it'd just be, in my situation, it'd be easier for me. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Just keeping keep track of it all. Yeah. Um, you know, my other question was, uh, you know, you're accessing, like, a, a variety of different services. Like, how do you see this kind of fitting in to the other services that you're kind of making use of to, to get sober? Um, well, for, for my situation, I, I think it fits in quite nicely. Um, yeah, I don't really know how if I know how to, to describe how it fits in or not, but sure, um, it, it works for me. Yeah. Um, before we let you go, do you have any like message or lesson that you would want to share about your experience? Um, just stick with it. You know, um, be real with it and give it your all. Yeah. If it's going to be worth it. Cool. Hey Jeremiah, um, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your experience with us, and you know, good luck with with it all. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you know, we actually um, have a, another person on the line that I'm just going to go um, directly to Jack in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, how's it going? Hey, hey, I'm good. So, uh, yeah, um, so yeah, I'm in recovery for meth addiction, and uh, I, I'm here in San Francisco. I uh, worked with the Stonewall Project a little bit, and I've seen these programs work. Um, meth addiction, it's the worst thing in the world. It destroys lives, absolutely just demolishes people, and it's the hardest thing in the world to get, get out of. Anything that we can do, anything is far worth it, and this is a very small amount of money that we're talking about. So the amount of money that I've seen people use in government health care um, to deal with their me- meth addiction is huge. So this small amount of money just to get somebody to, to quit would be 
it's, it seems like a good deal to me, you yeah. know? Had you tried to, you know, kick your habit before um, and not succeeded and then went through a program that used this kind of incentive system and, and you were able to succeed? I have tried many, many times. It took many years, um, many different things, AA, various programs, CMA. Um, and uh, what worked for me um, just was going back, keep going back to keep trying to quit. It takes a lot of time for a lot of people and many trials and errors, but it does work. In this program, I have seen work um, and anything that we can do to help people out of addiction, I think it's worth it. Well worth it. Hey, Jack, thank you so much for uh, that call for for sharing that experience as well. We're uh, talking about a pilot program in San Francisco that's expanding to many other California counties that rewards stimulant drug users for not using drugs with gift cards. Uh, We are joined by Brad Shapiro, professor at UCSF School of Medicine, Hector Hernandez Delgado, a staff attorney at the National Health Law Program. And we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts about this kind of program? Have you seen it work? Does it make you uncomfortable? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on threads, or on our Discord. We're KQED Forum. I just want to add another voice into our conversation. Nicholas King is an associate professor in the Biomedical Ethics Unit at McGill University. Welcome, Nicholas. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought, you know, maybe you could just walk us through what seems to have kind of held back. I mean, if we've known since the 1990s, at least, that there's some evidence that this might work, and given that it's relatively small dollars, as we've been saying, what do you think has like held the country back or, or at least held you know, particular governments back? Sure. And I should preface this by saying that I'm a strong supporter of invent- incentive-based and cash transfer programs, but I'll do my best to sort of outline what I yeah, think. Yeah, you can steel man the uh, <laughs> counter-argument. Yeah. yeah, yeah, to reasons to oppose it. So I think there, there, are about, there are several arguments that are usually brought against incentive or cash-based programs. Some that I think that are illegitimate, uh, others that I think are illegitimate. The first is a sense that uh, people who are addicted are somehow undeserving of public support, um, that we shouldn't be rewarding people who are addicted, um, even if we are trying to incentivize them to get sober or to get clean. Uh, I think this is illegitimate for two reasons. First, it's, it's morally vacuous and discriminatory, and it makes a judgment about individuals whose lives we we don't know anything about Hmm. and who were in no position to judge. Uh, The second reason, I think, is we don't attach these kinds of value judgments to other incentive-based policies. And the thing to remember is that incentive-based policies are not new and they're not restricted to these kinds of policies. This is the way public policy works Hmm. in the U.S., right? Um, The mortgage uh, tax Uh, tax rebates, right? We incentivize people to buy houses by giving them a rebate, a tax rebate on their mortgage interest, a deduction, sorry. It's not a direct cash payment, but it's an incentive. Um, You know, the third reason is that addiction isn't a choice, it's an illness. And it's perverse to hold individuals morally responsible for an illness that they didn't choose to have. Hmm. The second reason people usually oppose these is that it's 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 a little squishier, but it's this sense that paying people to do things that are good for them 
is somehow morally objectionable, like mm. paying your kid to do household chores. Like we we have this sense mm. that people should. You should just do it, kid. Yeah, you, right. Yeah. You know, it's good for you. Why? Why should we pay you to do something that you know is good for you and we know is good for you? Yeah. You know, we have this peculiar moral relationship with cash transfers in American culture, thinking they're somehow debased. Again, I think this is dis- is yeah. misplaced. It's not a morally relevant distinction between giving people money or vouchers or some other sort of resources. And in fact, since money is fungible, it gives recipients the freedom within bounds to spend it on whatever they need. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the illegitimate reasons. There are a couple more that I think are more legitimate. The first is that it might cause harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that Dr. Shapiro sort of made the, the distinction early on on the difference between a voucher-based program and a cash-based program. You know, there is a legitimate objection that you, by giving individuals with addictions cash, for example, they might spend it more on drugs that will further their addictions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think this is a legitimate objection because we should never have public policies that cause more harm. In this case, from what I understand about this program, because it gives vouchers, it cuts that off. And I think we have, you know, several decades of evidence showing, giving us good guidelines on how to formulate these programs to reduce or eliminate the harms. Well, yeah, let me let me, let me cut in for yeah, one second because what about people who say, yeah. you know, well, laws are about like the values of a society, and that if we just say, well, you know, we don't like that you're doing this, but we're going to give you this money anyway, that that somehow erodes kind of the the moral fabric of society. Yeah, I think that's I, that's a very good point. You know, in this case, we are giving people incentives to not break the law. Right. And again, this gets back to the first point of in American culture, we 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 somehow see giving cash as morally debased. Mm -hmm. Right. As if you spent that money on an educational program or providing other kinds of resources to encourage people not to break the law, that somehow is okay. But paying people directly, whether it's cash or vouchers, is somehow morally wrong. And again, I think this is a distinction without a difference. Right. You know, I'll just quickly run through the other two sort of legitimate objections. The first is that it might be ineffective, as the other guests have already, you know, demonstrated. uh, There's a lot of evidence that these are very effective programs. Um, And finally, there's often an objection raised that says, look, why don't we spend this money on other programs who we think should be rewarded? You know, um, people who are you know, single moms who are trying to feed their kids, people who are trying to further their education. Again, this is not a reward. It's an incentive. It's not rewarding people for being the kinds of people who we might think are morally uh, good. It is incentivizing particular behaviors that we as a society are trying to encourage. That's an interesting, that's a good way of putting it. You know, I, when we talk about the effectiveness of this program, and Brad Shapiro, I'm going to come to you first on this one. I, I, I think we need to understand that we're kind of talking about a, it, this is all happening against the backdrop of failure. Like we actually have had a really hard time helping people overcome addiction just as a medical uh, issue. So how would you define success for this program? Like what percentage of people, if this is what the outcome would be, what percentage of people stopping using methamphetamine and other stimulants would be considered a success? Yeah. uh, Well, 
I, I don't get to define that myself. Um, you know, this is a large pilot program. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, based on the literature, I'm hoping that we will see that uh, at least 25% of our patients will have some success at uh, becoming abstinent during this study. I'd be happy if it was more than that also. Uh, but I think uh, that, that would, that would mm -hmm. to me, be um, a success. And we have to remember that, as, as has already been pointed out, I think Hector mentioned this, uh, that it's a relapsing and remitting problem. And your guest, uh, uh, actually your, your caller, Jack, mm -hmm. talked about, you know, that you have to keep trying. So what we know is that continued attempts, periods of success, time abstinent, it all helps people lead toward long-term recovery, even if they don't achieve it in a single blow. Before, before, and you can ask me more about that if you want, but I do want to follow up. Uh, I thought uh, uh, Professor King had really an excellent uh, discussion there. I just wanted to say that I, I feel we have it a little backwards because I think the, the, the moral question for me is, um, you know, on a daily basis, I have people arriving to my clinic who've been using methamphetamine. They've been up all night. It, they show up. It's 55 degrees. They have no shoes on. They might have no shirt on. They're, have, they're in crisis because of the methamphetamine. And what I really want to think about with everyone on this panel and in the listening audience is what is the morality of not offering hmm. the very most effective treatment that we currently have to people who desperately need it? I think, you know, Jack, the, who called in, also really talked. He said that it demolishes people. Hmm. Do we want to... What is it like for us from a moral perspective to watch people around us being demolished? And a lot of us see it, you know, as we move through the city in San Francisco, I see it on a day-to-day -day basis. It's actually really quite devastating. And, you know, I think lastly, you know, uh, Professor King also mentioned this question of would we be better off funding a single mom to feed her kids? But I think we missed the point that the people were actually enrolling in this program. And there's no offense, Dr. I thought Dr. King's explanations were excellent. But, you know, we really, the people we're enrolling actually are single moms taking care of kids or as the patient who spoke uh, and was so generous to speak about his experience, he's a new father. Mm -hmm. You know, so these are not two separate choices. I just want to point yeah. that out. And, and I think what we're really looking at here in a lot of this moral discussion, uh, stigma and bias that's barely concealed. Mm -hmm. These are human issues with human people. It's a human program. And yes, there's a lot of psychology and brain behavior. But when patients come in, they're coming in and doing this with other human beings who care about them. So I'm just going to leave it at, at that. And you yeah. can come back to me if there's more that you want sure. there. Let's, um, let's bring in another caller first. Let's bring in John in San Francisco. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Um, I started listening a little bit more after I gave my comment to the person screening me for the call. And I started hearing your guest speaker talking about, you know, people not breaking the law when it comes to, you know, these uh, abusive substances. Um, and I also heard you mentioning how about it's really more of a mental health issue. I grew up in a household of addiction, so I was able to experience this from as long as I can remember. And, you know, as unfortunate as that is, learning, seeing these things at a young age gave me a whole other perspective of this, this type of issue. And one of the main things I've noticed, especially after going to different Al-Anon meetings and different 
you know, counseling, you know, from a young age to try to understand why this is happening in my life so early is that you really have to understand what people are going through before these addictions even happen. Mm. And some people will go, hey, you know, yeah, it's tough. Everybody's life is hard. You need to get over it. Yeah, we get that. But at the same time, you still have to deal with that. And one of the things I've noticed is when people feel like they have a purpose in life, they start to do less drugs, less Mm. alcohol, because they don't want to forsake their hobby or their purpose or their goal for a drug or an alcohol addiction. You know, when you have people out here with no vision or plan for the future, they feel like there's, they feel trapped. They feel like there's no way out Mm -hmm. there. There's no, there's no pathway forward. When we start making people, when we start helping people feel as though, Hey, there's a reason to live. There's a reason to want to go further. That's when we can really start tackling this drug and addiction problem. There are so many people coming here with, just a uh, just complete loss of vision, and we have to give people a vision. We have to give them some type of yeah. urge to want to live, to want to do something. I've seen people with hobbies who go, "Hey, you know what? I like my hobby so much. I don't think I ever want to give this up. I'm finally at peace." Yeah. And I've seen people at peace for once in their life, and the looks on their faces, their attitudes, their body language, everything changes when they finally find peace and purpose. Yeah. So I so- hope for anyone out there listening. If you can find your peace and your purpose, go for it. Yeah. And don't don't let this thing take over your life. It, it can be more. John, thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. I, you know, and, and Brad, you know, listening to John just made me wonder how this is going to work with sort of other psychological treatment, right? Like, I mean, this is kind of these rewards kind of walk people down, um, d- down the path. But do they then, you know, receive other treatment that helps them find, you know, purpose beyond, you know, just the gift card reward? Yeah, great question. And thank you, John. That actually um, really appreciate you bringing in both the issues about what happens to people. And then, so the short the short answer is, yeah, uh, there's evidence that supports uh, adding other treatments. And for us, uh, people will have both uh, during this time period access to, to counseling and other supportive services. And in the after period when they complete this treatment program, people are uh, offered at least a year of uh, aftercare. So yes, that needs to be built into the model. This is not by itself the entire solution. And I really appreciate the bigger context that John brought in. Yeah. Thank you, John. We're talking about a pilot program in San Francisco and beyond that rewards stimulant drug users for not using drugs with gift cards. Joined by Brad Shapiro of UCSF, Hector Hernandez Delgado of the National Health Law Program, and McGill University's Nicholas King. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a pilot program in San Francisco, which is now going to be also rolling out in many other counties in California, that rewards stimulant drug users for not using drugs with gift cards. It's all part of a Medicaid program. California's going to be the first uh, state to use federal dollars for this purpose. We're joined by Nicholas King, associate professor in the Biomedical Ethics Unit at McGill University. Brad Shapiro, professor at UCSF School of Medicine and medical director at the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General. That's one of the sites uh, in San Francisco that's uh, piloting this this work. And Hector Hernandez Delgado, staff attorney at the National Health Law Program. Um, Hector, I think I'm going to come to you on this, uh, and I think we're going to probably move around on this comment a little bit. One listener writes in to say, I wholeheartedly support this as long as there are checks and balances. The program needs to be facilitated through drug court. If you come up, quote, dirty, you not only don't get paid, you spend 72 hours in jail the first time, increasing with each failure. This is much better than the harm reduction movement of handing out foil, clean needles, and a safe consumption site. So I want to first uh, approach this um, from the effectiveness angle. Um, are there other programs that have been tried that instead of using sort of rewards and incentives, instead use sort of like increasing punishments? Well, <clears throat> I think uh, in the, in the uh, substance use world, um, that's what we have right now, right? With substance use, we are living in a in an environment and under a policy that punishes uh, people for using drugs, but also punishes people for having uh, a substance use disorder. Uh, I don't think we we as a society have changed that. Um, uh, we're making efforts and, and uh, strides towards uh, improving that and making sure that we recognize uh, substance use disorders as a, a, a as a medical condition, um, as a health con- uh, condition. Uh, and it's a behavioral health uh, uh, condition, uh, but but we're still not there, and that's uh, evident by the fact that um, a lot of individuals who need this uh, this type of services are not accessing accessing uh, them um, uh, as needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 we we really are in 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 that environment or of mostly punishing people for their uh, their conditions and it's really not working so i think that's what what is what is um refreshing for uh from uh the harm reduction movement with other uh for other uh, uh conditions of for, for substance use in, in general but also more specific uh, with regards to the the uh this contingency management program is that we're trying a different approach we're trying a different approach because it's not working we're seeing an increase in stimulant use disorder uh, uh, deaths and substance use disorder deaths in uh, in, in general. Um, uh, so so it's a, it's trying to take a different approach. And instead of punishing uh, individuals, um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna try incentivizing them to do something different because we know it works. Because that, that that's the, the data and the evidence yeah. uh, shows us that that it works. Nicholas King, um, would you actually put re- this kind of uh, reward uh, and incentive program? into the harm reduction bucket or not? Well, I mean, strictly speaking, um, you know, I wouldn't classify this as harm reduction. Harm reduction, you know, the, one of the tenets of harm reduction is that you recognize that people may engage in behaviors that are harmful to themselves, to their own health, 
and you try to reduce those harms. So for example, um, supervised injection sites, recognize that people with addictions who might be using injectable drugs are going to continue to use them, but you try to reduce the harms from, for example, infectious disease transmission and also having um, measures on site to deal with overdoses. Uh, so one of those principles is the point of it is not actually to treat the addiction per se, but to reduce the harms, although most of these sites will also have access to education and treatment and so forth. However, I would say it shares something very important in common with harm reduction programs, which gets back to something that Dr. Shapiro mentioned earlier, which is that these programs are based on a compassionate approach to individuals. It treats people who are experiencing addictions as human beings with dignity who are worthy of respect. It treats them how I think we would, and how many of your, several of your callers have made, it treats them how I think we would want to be treated ourselves if we had an addiction, or we would want our loved ones to be treated with an addiction. And both harm reduction and these kinds of programs say, let's start from a place of compassion where we respect people's freedom and autonomy and dignity and treat them that way, rather than, as your last emailer mm -hmm. said, punishing them for particular behaviors that happen right now to be designated as illegal. Yeah. Um, one listener on Discord writes, and, and Brad Shapiro, this is coming to you, just curious if there's any theory as to why this works, you know, insofar as, as we know that it does. Does the financial incentive act on the same part of the brain as the stimulant drugs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, let, me, let me try to get at that one. And if you don't mind too much, I just wanted to appreciate uh, – this last discussion and the listener, and I also uh, I also wanted to say to you know in terms of the listener's question about facilitation through drug court that there is no wrong question here, and I think it would be really useful in that kind of situation to understand better from that person what it is that they feel is missing from this approach. So uh, I just wanted to say that. Um, yeah, is there a theory why this works? Yes, um, you know we we understand that. Uh, methamphetamine and cocaine are hijacking the reward system of the brain. They do this by overwhelming the brain with supernormal amounts of dopamine, which, uh, which essentially uh, overwhelm the reward system at levels that were not seen with ordinary re rewards. And what we see is that uh, the, the incentives, even though they are curiously not extremely high in value, the whole arrangement. See, it's not just the incentive. Um, mm -hmm. A simple example is that, you know, I've got a 10-year-old daughter and uh, I take her to the Marin County Fair every year and she loves to throw the darts at the balloons. Mm -hmm. And we spend $40 or so doing that. And she gets a, you know, a, a not so expensive <laughs> stuffed animal. But it is the, in sense, I don't want to call it the game, but it is this whole process that is extremely rewarding. And, it, mm. and in the same way, the setup of contingency management is more than just giving people the money. We are actually addressing this problem with the reward system through evidence-based approaches that actually really do activate this reward system in a different way. So the rewards end up with a lot of surprising amounts of salience that relate to the whole setup. And so... It, I think the theory is essentially that um, we could get into the weeds, but... It, 
but that we are working on the same system. Yes, which I, I think is mm-hmm. the is the main answer to the question, and it's a very good question. Yeah, let's um bring in Shannon in Hayward. Uh, hi. Hello. Yes, Shannon, go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Uh, yes. So I was married and fell in love with a veteran. Uh, and we had a beautiful son, and um, I was an Uber driver, and I found, I was looking for some sunglasses, and instead I found a small baggie of cocaine, um, and rather than throwing it out of the window, I, my husband at the time uh, said, oh, no, I, I have some friends at the VA that will, in, that will definitely use this. And then fast forward, he started using it and then started the downward spiral until he, I found him overdosed in my shower mm. and his lips were blue and his body was sweaty and uh, I had to call the par- paramedics. And um, I'm sitting there in my jacuzzi relaxing um, and I see my ex-husband three hours after he was admitted into the hospital, climbing over my fence and asking for his stuff. Um, so at which mm. point, so yeah, so, um, and at this point he is definitely self-medicating. Um, he's got some PTSD. He is also 100% service connected. Mm. So he's getting almost $4,000 from the government, and he's using that to get high. So and this has, incentive is... Has, yeah. he, has he tried to quit? Yeah, he has tried. We were clean together in N.A. when we met. Mm. Um, but since then, you know, he, since then he's moved to Medford, Oregon, uh, thinking that it was going to be different over there. Mm. So in a sense, he took a geographic, mm-hmm. thinking that things would be different if he just changed his environment. Because Oakland, um, yeah. we live in the East Bay, and Oakland is kind of like a bigger version of the Tenderloin, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. in some respects. But it's everywhere. Yeah, you know, Shannon, um, I really appreciate you just sharing kind of the, the, the baseline here in so much of, you know, of trying to treat people with addiction is, is it not working, right? Is people continuing to use and, and ha- having, you know, this kind of impact on Available. their own body? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing that and hope, hope he gets, gets the help he needs. You know, Brad, can you talk to me a, a, a little bit about that, about just how, how hard it has proven Particularly, you know, in, in we've done a series of shows on, on drugs recently, and, you know, we know that the street price of meth has just, you know, gone through the floor, uh, and, it's, and it's really flooded onto the streets. What, what other tools do we need to have uh, available here um, in addition to, to what you're doing, you know, with this um, rewards and incentives? Yeah, thank you. And, and, and I just want to say, Shannon, I'm so sorry. That just sounds incredibly uh, difficult. Um, yeah, and this is a really important story because – and I thank her for bringing it forward because this puts into context what we're trying to deal with. It's a, it, you know all of the different aspects and the fact that it's not just the person involved who's affected but all the people around them who care about them and are connected to them. So – you know, what else do we need? So we have uh, in, in addiction treatment, we generally have uh, what we call levels of care. So there's different 
levels throughout the system. And so when someone is really uh, struggling and they're not doing well with uh, outpatient care, so going to a clinic, maybe even participating in contingency management, we think about moving up to a higher level of care. And that can involve like an in- intensive outpatient programs, or sometimes someone needs to go into a residential treatment program and spend some time in that program. And that gives them a chance to hopefully be away from uh, the environment in which they have been using uh, and be in a supportive environment that's focused on recovery. And for some people that's needed. And what do we need? We actually need, and we are increasing, the, the, at least in San Francisco, there's increasing investment in residential treatment, but it's generally been underfunded. There's generally not been enough treatment slots and probably needing to have additional services available. Now, when you're service-connected in the VA, that system tends to be a little bit more robust, but of course, a person has to be able and willing to enter mm-hmm. um, that. But so I think all through these levels of care, things like contingency management should be included throughout. So if you are inter residential treatment, it's very reasonable to have contingencies available. If you stay, uh, you, maybe there's a maybe there are rewards if you participate in certain ways, if you meet certain milestones. So contingency management can be added on to almost all the things we do. And it has been shown over and over again to increase effectiveness, increase retention and treatment. So I don't want to hammer that nail too much. But so there's a whole spectrum of care and we need to participate in it. We also, frankly, we also need to stop breaking people. You know, we need to look at where people are living and what their life situations are. When people have PTSD, they need specialized treatment. We need to try to avoid traumatizing people in the first place, both as children and adults. So we have to take responsibility across our entire society for the antecedents to addiction also. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to speak very broadly yeah. there. But I'll yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, a couple of comments. You know, I think sometimes when we are, are on the show and across the city, you know, we are having these discussions about drug addiction and, and it can feel polite in the media. We have a couple of comments from people that, mm-hmm. are, that are, are less so, I think, and I want to bring these to you, Nicholas. Um, one listener writes in to say, the idea of paying people to not use drugs in San Francisco is absurd. This will exacerbate the homeless crisis as addicts flock to the city for even more benefits. San Francisco provides more services to addicts than anywhere already. Another listener writes, why do we focus so much on addicted people in the U.S.? There are people in this country that deserve programming, mothers who are being arrested for trying to get health care, mothers who can't work due to lack of child care, lack of support for people trying to get an education because they can't afford it, not enough support for single moms trying to take care of their families. I'm so sick of hearing about deadbeats. I'm sick of the focus being on people who simply to who simply seem to not even want to try. Here are the stats. We're talking about less than 1% of the population. We've already given them $35 billion. Six explanation points. 700,000 people have died from overdose since 2000. $35 billion was put into the federal budget for drug use control in 2020. Nicholas King, I, I think this is the feeling that people, some people have um, on the on the streets of San Francisco, certainly, um, and, and around this, this country. Like, how would you respond to, to the, those comments? Sure, I'd, I'd respond in, in two ways. Um, the first gets back to the point um, that Dr. Shapiro had made and that I'd also made about, you know, rejecting this idea that anyone who has an addiction is a quote-unquote deadbeat, right? There are a lot of people who have addictions. There are a lot of stories. We've heard some already on the program for how people become addicted. And we are in no place to sort of judge the moral worth of these individuals. And, you know, I, for one, 
would prefer a public policy that starts from a point of compassion for people who have the disease of addiction and for trying to help them, uh, both in a small way, in that I think that individuals, whether they're addicted or not, deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and autonomy, but also from a larger public policy of, I think that, you know, in the U.S. now, there's, there's you know, to be, be really big picture about it, there's kind of a trend towards a punitive public policy, which I think is really corrosive for uh, mm. American society in general, and I think should be replaced with a compassionate public policy. Mm. But let's say you think that's all, you know, crap. I think there is a fundamentally sort of utilitarian argument that it works, right? And I understand the deep-seated um, impatience that people who are living in the midst of an addiction crisis that is ongoing, that is worsening, who seem to see that nothing seems to work, and they're impatient, and often their anger is misplaced or displaced onto the individual suffering from addictions, mm. to which I would respond, look, these are programs that we actually have evidence that they work. So on the basis of just broad self-interest, if you want to see less addiction, if you want to see less homelessness, why not support the programs that mm. work? These ones do for very particular mm. uh, populations. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Last uh, couple of comments. You know, Tater on Discord writes, I know nothing about this topic, but I so desperately want it to work. I fundamentally believe almost no one is addicted or unhoused because they want to be, and so much of the time people who cross the financial housing threshold turn to drugs to ease the pain of being on the streets or in the case of stimulants to stay awake in order to avoid being victimized. I also wish there was a way to get people more direct payments to prevent homelessness on the front end. I hope this example demonstrates that for most people, a little help early in the process can be life-changing for the individual and community building for the collective. Got a variety of perspectives here today. Thank you so much for all of them. We've been talking about a pilot program in San Francisco and expanding to other California counties that reward stimulant drug users for not using drugs with gift cards. We've been joined by Nicholas King, Associate Professor in the Biomedical Ethics Unit at McGill University. Brad Shapiro, Professor at UCSF School of Medicine and Medical Director at the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General, as well as Hector Hernandez Delgado, Staff Attorney at the National Health Law Program. Earlier, we were also joined by Jeremiah Fitz, a participant in the Recovery Incentives Program. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Guy Marzarati. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.